Mic check. Hey, I think it's working. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. This is Just Human number 226. I need a little more volume on myself. Um, <clears throat> so I think y'all know what we're going to do today. We're going to read the TMTG lawsuit. We're going to read Elon's lawsuit. And then we're going to go to uh, the um, wherever wherever we left off in the Judge Chukin case, the Trump DC case. So <clears throat> we uh, it's going to be legal filings today. Uh, that's my plan. Again, again, some people really like that. Some folks don't care for it that much, and that's okay. Uh, but that's just where my interest is right now. And I'm excited to read some of these lawsuits. The TMTG one, there actually isn't that much in it uh, to read. There's a lot of citations in it, but um, we're still going to go through it. The Elon one is good. I'm excited about it. So, um, you know, thoughts and prayers for the... Um, for the crowd who thinks Elon's a bad guy. Thoughts and prayers. I don't think they're doing too well. They're having a bad time. <laughs> All those Elon Musk haters are having a really bad time <laughs> as of late. So thank you guys for being here. If you enjoy the show over on Rumble, hit the thumbs up, uh, wherever else, share the show, comment on it, whatever. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the feedback. And uh, yeah, ways to support the show can be found in my link tree. Here we go. Here we go. Ways to support the show can be found in my link tree. You can find that in the bio of any of my socials. And uh, you can also go to the description of the show on most platforms. And when you go there, you'll see a section that has support links. One of those ways is you can go to ko-fi.com and buy me a coffee and keep me uh, caffeinated. I am, I'm on coffee number three. I think it is. I think I'm on coffee number three this morning. Hopefully I can stay awake, but I do plan on a nap before devolution power hour, or I'm, I'm hoping to have a nap before devolution power hour. Another way to uh, support the show is to click on the Benson honey farms link. And, uh, that's an affiliate link. So after you click on that, anything you buy from the wonderful people over at Benson honey farms, uh, a few dollars get kicked my way. Same thing with the bootleg products. If you want some chili or salsa or sauces, they're delicious. All, everything I've had from bootleg is delicious. Click the link in the bot in my link tree or on the show description on rumble and any purchase you make there, a couple dollars get kicked my way. And then lastly, there's buy me a coffee with Venmo. That's straight up um, understandable. And then there's the merch. If you need a coffee cup, a pint glass, whatever, with my logo on it, if that interests you, go there, get yourself some merch. Again, a couple dollars get kicked my way. And I will say the number one way, my or at least my favorite way for you to support the show, if you're interested is justhuman.substack.com. And that is because I occasionally do articles here. Occasionally, not that often. But I put my podcast out through here and there's about a thousand people who listen to the podcast every uh, every show and I appreciate them very much. But on, on Substack, you can do a paid subscription. You can do free and you'll have access to everything. But you can also do a paid subscription. And I love that because it's a little bit of money that I can count on each month. So if you're really looking to support the show, Substack is the best way because when you buy a subscription to it, it's money that I know is going to be coming in. So I appreciate it very much. I appreciate everybody who supports the show. You guys make it possible and everybody who makes purchases through the uh, 
um, my affiliate links. I get emails letting me know when someone makes a purchase after the clicking my link. And thank you. And I hope you enjoy the products that you get from those from those great outlets. All right. Let's get to the show. Well, actually, I'll grab those two rants. Uh, and good morning, Sergeant Sparky over on Pilled. Air titties for the win, indeed. That is very true. Air titties for the win. All titties for the win, honestly. Just titties for the win. Liz Jen over on Rumble, thank you very much. Good morning. Is your wife making your favorite pies? Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yes, she is. Yes, it is apple pie week. It is my favorite week of the entire year. <laughs> Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday of the entire year. And uh, I love it. My wife, she's actually at the gym right now. Um, she bragged to me this morning. She's lost four pounds over these past couple weeks. And I think I've gained as much weight as the dog has gained. <laughs> I think for some reason, I told her, I told her something got crossed up here. And I was supposed to be helping Hercules gain his weight back. And instead, I'm gaining weight right there with him. We're both, we're both 10 pounds heavier than we were a month ago, I think. Um, <laughs> so I need to get my butt to the gym. Um, so yeah, happy Thanksgiving to y'all. My wife's going to, it's uh this afternoon is pie making afternoon. So I've got the boys and the dogs this afternoon and evening, and she's headed over to her parents' house to do all the baking. Uh, so happy days. All right. Uh, Mooney's. Thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Adam Carter, good morning. Here's hoping no bots this morning. Yeah, that was a bit annoying last time. There were quite a few bots to snuff out. So, <laughs> Michelle over on Pills says sympathy weight. Yeah, I'm going to write it off as that. It's, it's, my body is empathizing with Hercules. <laughs> I'm supporting him in his weight gain by also gaining weight myself. All right, Bear, thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Okay, so let me get to let me get to some news. Thank you guys very much. Uh, so Elon said over the weekend that he was going to file a lawsuit uh, and sue Media Matters for America because they defamed him and True so and um, X, not True Social X. And he did. And we have the filing right here. And right after this filing came out, right after it broke that, okay, there's the filing. It's out. True Social came along and said, we're filing a defamation suit too against all of these media outlets who defamed us by misreporting on our, uh, our SEC documents and our merger effort and the status of True Social. They launched a lawsuit. And then also around the same time, and I actually lost it. Where did it go? Ken Paxton came out here, here, not there. There it is. Ken Paxton put out a statement saying, Hey, I'm investigating media matters for America for potential fraudulent activity. And I, my favorite thing about this tweet right here is that Elon said fraud has both civil and criminal penalties. Now I said on, um, I think it was defected that I'm not expecting media matters to be completely destroyed. I'm just, I'm just not, I, I'm, I just don't. I just don't think that this will absolutely destroy media matters once and for all. However, it might damage them so much that they are not nearly as effective. And I think the the real hope here 
I think the real best case and also plausible outcome from this lawsuit against Media Matters is that it uh, makes outfits like Media Matters think twice about defaming people with false reporting and uh, just just what they've been doing. That it dissuades them and makes it where, yeah, it's not so easy to get away with the type of behavior that Media Matters has engaged in. I mean, they're Infowar terrorists in some respects. Saboteurs. Ne'er-do-wells. And that's being polite. In truth, they're evil. Okay. So we have X Corp versus Media Matters for America and Eric Hananoki. Here is the complaint. This was filed in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas, Fort Worth Division. So heck yeah. Um, in Texas, that's good. And then I saw the judge that was appointed. Seems good. I don't know that much about him, but on the surface, seems like, seems good. We'll see. All right, here's the complaint. Defendant Media Matters for America, and here it's going to be called Media Matters, is a self-proclaimed media watchdog that decided it would not let the truth get in the way of a story it wanted to publish about X Corp. Looking to portray X social media networking platform as being dominated by, quote, white nationalist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, Media Matters knowingly and maliciously manufactured side-by-side -side images depicting advertisers' posts on X Corp social media platform besides or beside neo-Nazi and white nationalist fringe content, and then portrayed these manufactured images as if they were what, what's typical X users experience on the platform. Media Matters designed both these images and its resulting media strategy to drive advertisers from the platform and destroy X Corp. Plaintiff X Corp operates the X social media platform with over 500 million active monthly users. X facilitates free express expression and open discourse by enabling its users to create and share their own content and to message and comment on other users' posts. These posts appear sequentially to users in feeds, which occasionally include paid advertisements, the overwhelming source of X Corp's revenue. Users shape their own experiences on X. Yes. Man, okay, that is my favorite line. This may end up being my favorite line in this entire document because I love that as a statement, period, on its own. Users shape their own experiences on X. And I shouldn't preach too much on it, but that is true of every single social media platform out there. You are the architect of your experience on that platform. These social media platforms are tools and you can use them in a variety of ways. Uh, I think X is the most useful, the most powerful and the most important out of all of them, but it's what holds true for X holds true for all the others. Users shape you shape your own experience on the platform. You're in control of it. And any platform that doesn't allow you to exert at least some control over your experience on their platform is one not worth being on in my opinion. All right. Users curate the content on their own feeds by choosing to follow other users, thereby determining which posts are presented to them. Most users are served a variety of content based on an algorithm that takes account of who that user follows and what that user engages with. 
but X also provides its users the option to forego algorithmically suggested posts altogether, thereby enabling a user to view only the content that user chooses to view. As the most prominent online platform dedicated to hosting free speech, X and its predecessor, Twitter, have long been the target of Media Matters. In just the last year, Media Matters has published a series of articles threatening X's relationship with massive multinational advertisers and global publishers, including Amazon, eBay, Major League Baseball, New York Times, Samsung, Sports Illustrated, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Office Depot, Nokia, Dish, Bayer, Tyson Foods, Honeywell, Discovery, FanDuel, Thermo Fisher, National Women's Soccer League, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the, Pits- the Atlanta Falcons, Manchester City, DraftKings, FanDuel, T-Mobile, and The Athletic. Footnote. Footnote. It says, see Eric Kananoki, quote, X is placing ads for Amazon NBA, NBA Mexico, NBC Universal, and others next to content with white nationalist hashtags. Media Matters for America, November 17th. And it links to the article. Hit piece, smear piece. (laughs) More accurate. This November alone, Media Matters released over 20 articles and counting disparaging both X-Corp and Elon Musk, a blatant smear campaign. For the last several years, Media Matters has falsely portrayed Twitter, now X, as a risky, unsafe platform for advertisers. Contrary to these efforts, 99% of X's measured ad placement in 2023 has appeared adjacent to content scoring above the Global Alliance for Responsible Media's brand brand safety floor. Okay, so they're saying 99% of X's Measured ad placement passes this uh, this group's scale. It's going above the brand safety floor. Undeterred by the truth, as the left always are, Media Matters has opted for new tactics in its campaign to drive advertisers from X. Media Matters has manipulated the algorithms governing the user experience on X by bypassing safeguards and uh, create, creating images of X's largest advertisers' paid posts adjacent to racist, incendiary content, leaving the false impression that these pairings are anything but what they actually are, manufactured, inorganic, and extraordinarily rare. Media Matters executed this plot in multiple steps, as X's internal investigations have revealed. First, Media Matters accessed accounts that had been active for at least 30 days, bypassing, bypassing X's ad filter for new users. Media Matters then exclusively followed a small subset of the users consisting entirely of accounts in one of two categories, those known to produce extreme fringe content and accounts owned by X's big-name advertisers. The end result was a feed precision designed by Media Matters for a single purpose, to produce side-by-side ad content placements that it could screenshot in an effort to alienate advertisers. But this activity still was not enough to create the pairings of advertisements and content that Media Matters aimed to produce. Media Matters therefore resorted to endlessly scrolling and refreshing its unrepresentative hand-selected feed, generating between 13 and 15 times more advertisements per hour than viewed by the average ex-user. Wow. Repeating this inauthentic activity until it finally received pages containing the result it wanted. Controversial content next to X's largest advertisers paid post. So they 
they purposefully curated their feed to make it likely that at some point disturbing content would come up. And then they just kept refreshing their feed over and over and over and over again until something landed. And then they screenshot that and portrayed it as if that was a regular thing. Media Matters omitting mentioning any of this in a report published on November 16th, 2023 to displayed instances Media Matters, quote, found on X of advertisers paid post featured next to neo-Nazi and white nationalist content. Nor did Media Matters otherwise provide any context regarding the forced, inauthentic nature and extraordinary rarity of these pairings. However, relying on the specious narrative propagated by Media Matters, the advertisers targeted, uh, targeted took these pairings. The advertisers targeted took these pairings to be anything but rare and inorganic with all but one of the companies featured in the Media Matters piece withdrawing all ads from X, including Apple, Comcast, NBC Universal, and IBM, some of, the X, some of X's largest advertisers. Indeed, in pulling all advertising from X in response to this intentionally deceptive report, IBM called the pairings an, quote, entirely unacceptable situation. Footnote. Anna Murphy, this is an article, IBM pulls ads. Okay. Only Oracle did not withdraw its ads. Hmm. Huh. Funny that Oracle is the one that stuck with them. Hmm. That company comes up in the most interesting places. You know, X can, X can get damages from this. Like X can say, look, this is how much Apple pays us per year. This is how much Comcast pays us per year and NBC and IBM. They can add up how much all of these advertisers that left paid them per year and claim that as damages. They could, I don't know, maybe they can bankrupt Media Matters. I don't know how rich Media Matters is or how much liquidity they have access to. The truth bore no resemblance. <clears throat> to Media Matters narrative. In fact, IBM's Comcast and Oracle's paid post appeared alongside the French content cited by Media Matters for only one viewer out of more than 500 million on all of X. Media Matters, not a single authentic user of the X platform saw IBM's Comcast or Oracle's ads next to that content, which Media Matters achieved only through its manipulation of X's algorithms as described above. And in Apple's case, only two out of more than 500 million active users saw its ad appear alongside the fringe content cited in the article, at least one of which was Media Matters. Wow. What? Wow. Media Matters could have produced a fair, accurate account of users' interactions with advertisements on X via basic reporting, following real users documenting the actual organic production of content and advertisement pairings. Had it done so, however, it would not have produced the outcome Media Matters so desperately desired, which was to tarnish X's reputation by associating it with racist content. So instead, Media Matters chose to maliciously misrepresent the X experience with the intention of harming X and its business. 
Plaintiff X Corp. is a corporation organized and existing under the laws of the state of Nevada, with its principal place of business in San Francisco, California. Plaintiff conducts significant business in Texas, including maintaining significant offices in Texas. It operates the social media platform X, formerly Twitter, an internet-based service that enables users to create and share their own content, interact with other users, and curate feeds of content. Defendant Media Matters is a web-based publisher incorporated under the laws of the District of Columbia, with its principal place of business at 800 Main Avenue, Suite 400, Washington, D.C. The organization's purpose is to, quote, systematically monitor conservative media and publish reports based on this purported reporting. Defendant Eric Hananoki is a writer for Defendant Media Matters and is domiciled in Maryland. Okay, so we have... A party headquartered in California, registered as a corporation in Nevada, but does has offices in Texas and does significant business in Texas, and that's X. They're in those three states. So they could bring this lawsuit in any of those three places. They're choosing to bring it in Texas for obvious reasons. Media Matters is in D.C., and Eric Hanunoki is in Maryland. I can definitely picture Media Matters' first move here, or one of their first moves, being trying to get this moved to California or to D.C. Jurisdiction and Venue. This court has subject matter jurisdiction pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 1332 because there exists complete diversity of citizenship between plaintiff and defendants, and the amount in controversy exceeds $75,000. This court has personal jurisdiction over Media Matters because Media Matters' campaign against X Corp was purposefully directed at, among others, relationships with advertisers who are located in, have a significant presence in, or transact substantial business in Texas. Ah. Likewise, this court has personal jurisdiction over Media Matters because its attempts to harm X-Corp's reputation potentially threatened X-Corp's relationships with hundreds of millions of users, including millions of Texas users. This court has personal jurisdiction over Hananoki for substantially the same reasons. This venue is proper pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 1391 because a substantial part of the events giving rise to the claims occurred herein. Because a substantial part of the property that is subject of the action, that is, X's business and advertising, is situated in the district. And because all defendants are subject to personal jurisdiction in this district. Okay, so that's their case as to why this should be carried out in the Texas court. <clears throat> we'll see if that's successful. I mean, I seems a decent argument. I'm sure Media Matters will try to make their own decent argument against it. All right, general allegations. X is a safe platform for users and advertisers despite Media Matters deceptions. X is a social media platform that remains in operation due to its loyal users and advertisers. X Corp invests heavily in technologies that work in tandem to facilitate safe and effective interactions between users and advertisers. Technologies that, under normal organic conditions, operate seamlessly. As a first layer of protection for advertisers, X applies default protections to all posts. 
These protections are designed to prevent advertisements from being placed next to content that violates community guidelines. When users operate within Excess Community Guidelines, these default mechanisms are effective and have a long history of successfully protecting Excess advertisers from undesirable interactions with fringe content. As a second layer of protection, X provides advertisers with opt-in options. These options allow advertisers to further address any specific concerns they may have about their advertisements being seen next to specific content. Here, advertisers can specify which keywords and user handles they do not want their posts to appear by. These protections and others create a safe environment for advertisers that allow them to reach their target audiences while protecting their brands, as Media Matters well knows. Next, Media Matters systematically manipulated the X user experience to defame X. On November 16, 2023, Media Matters published a false, defamatory, and misleading article with the headline, quote, X has been placing ads for Apple, Bravo, IBM, Oracle, and Xfinity next to pro-Nazi content. There's a footnote on Xfinity. Xfinity is a Comcast service. Okay. They're just clarifying that. Oh, uh, my dogs are barking. Why are they barking? Oh, they're barking because the dogs next door are out. Okay, never mind. I have a doggy cam. <laughs> I was gonna check. I was gonna bring it up and make sure they're not like breaking out of their cage or something. All right. All right, next, these advertisers next to pro-Nazi content, claiming that X was responsible for anti-Semitic content being paired with X's advertisers' paid posts. You know where I see the most pro-Nazi content? Mainstream media. <laughs> like the New York Times. <laughs> All right, this statement was not true, and Media Matters knew it. As explained below and displayed in an X internal review, this title is false and that Media Matters itself, not X, was responsible for placement of the content and identified through its willful exploitation of X's user features. A result it specifically intended to bring about. X, in fact, has many default safeguards that prevent the platform dis from displaying content in the manner artificially achieved by defendant. Further, in the body of the piece, Media Matters falsely claims that it, quote, recently found ads. That was the wrong verb to use. <laughs> Next to posts that tout Hitler and his Nazi party on X. And they cite the same article again. Media Matters did not find pairings that X passively allowed on the platform. Media Matters created these pairings in secrecy to manufacture the harmful perception the X is at best an incompetent content moderator, a harmful ac accusation for any social media platform, or even worse, that X was somehow indifferent or even encouraging to Nazi and racist ideology. On X, users, users can control the content on their feeds. When users show interest in particular topics, ads will generate that relate to those topics. Media Matters exploited these features by creating a secret X account, precision designed to evade normal safeguards, manipulating every aspect of the system through which posts and advertisements appear, ultimately creating the side-by-side -side images of objectionable content and advertisements. 
X's internal user data tells the story of just how far Media Matters went to manufacture an inorganic user experience, strictly aimed at creating an interaction between controversial content and big-name advertisers that was seen only by the Media Matters account and then published broadly. First, Media Matters set out on their attempt to evade X's content filters for new users by specifically using an account that had been ex in existence for more than 30 days. <coughs> Next, Media Matters set its account to follow only 30 users. All right, uh, let me hold on, hold on here. Okay. I just want to want to pause. I'm I'm going fast. I'm kind of rushing a bit, and I need to slow down because I want to uh, take a moment to just put yourself in Media Matters shoes and think about the steps they took to create the result they wanted. That's what they're gonna. That's what X is gonna try to do in court. Is they're gonna try and they're gonna want to illustrate to the judge um, that. These are the steps you ha a person would have to go through in order to get the results that Media Matters got. So first, Media Matters set out to evade X's content filters for new users by specifically using an account that had been in existence for more than 30 days. So more than 30 days ago, they had to have created this account <clears throat> because brand new users, there's more, there's more automatic filters on the content that new, years, new users see. Basically, it's like safe mode because you haven't interacted that much and your account hasn't been around for very long. Next, meet, so they had to they had to plan this. That this goes to conspiracy. The fact that they use this, and if if they can prove that the account they used was created just for this purpose, then it also speaks to a conspiracy that they engaged in. And that's I mean that could be where Kim Paxton comes in. Is that you know you guys engaged in a conspiracy that was defamatory against this corporation, intending to do grave financial harm, which was successful in that almost every advertiser you named, um, in your targeted article, left the platform all but one. All right, so they did, did that with that account. Next, Media Matters set its account to follow only thirty users which is far less than the average number of accounts followed by a typical active user. That would be 219. Severely limiting the amount and type of content featured on its feed. So they sought out and found 30 users who were they felt were most likely to generate the content that would be offensive to the advertisers targeted. All of these, uh, I need water. Sorry. All of these users were either already known for posting controversial content or were the accounts for X's advertisers. So those are the two types of things they mixed. The advertisers they were targeting and then accounts known to post offensive content. That is 100% of the accounts Media Matters followed were either fringe accounts or were accounts for national large brands. In all, this functioned as an attempt to flood the Media Matters account with content only from national brands and fringe figures. 
tricking the algorithm into thinking Media Matters wanted to view both hateful content and content from large advertisers. Even this did not produce Media Matters' intended result. An internal review by X revealed that Media Matters' account started to alter its scrolling and refreshing activities in an attempt to manipulate inorganic combinations of advertisements and content. Media Matters' excessive scrolling and refreshing generated between 13 and 15 times more advertisements per hour than would be seen by a typical user, essentially seeking to force a situation in which a brand ad post appeared adjacent to French content. So they had to... They did so much refreshing and scrolling while only following 30 users. There was 13 and 15 times more advertisements per hour than the typical user sees. Eventually, through intentionally evading X's multiple safeguards by curating the content on its feed and then repeatedly attempting to create pairings of advertisements for major brands with controversial content, Media Matters finally achieved its goal. Accordingly, it took screenshots of posts from IBM, Apple, Bravo, Xfinity, and Oracle that Media Matters engineered to appear adjacent to inflammatory fringe content. To defame X, Media Matters hid its manipulation from readers and advertisers. Media Matters generated a specific, intended result that was not only inorganic, but exceedingly and demonstrably rare all while taking specific steps to obscure this in its November 16, 2023 article. The overall effect on advertisers and users was to create the false, misleading perception that these types of pairings were common, widespread, and alarming. Media Matters hid its manipulations through omissions, deceptive image selections, misrepresentations, and secrecy settings. Media Matters omitted it in its entirety its process of manufacturing these ad pairings, it did not include in its article that it created a user that only followed 30 accounts that either belonged to fringe figures or in major national brands. Neither readers nor advertisers had any way of knowing that the entire feed was orchestrated to generate the remarkably rare combinations. Media Matters also omitted mentioning in its entirety its excessive scrolling and refreshing, allowing users to believe falsely that the report was produced under circumstances that were organic and unmanipulated. Media Matters also omitted and made no attempt to clarify the rarity of these pairings. The representation put forth by Media Matters constituted a 0.00000009090909% of impressions served on the day in question. Most or all of these pairings were not seen by literally anyone besides Media Matters' own manipulated account, and no authentic user of the platform has been confirmed to have seen any of these pairings. Media Matters' image choice in its smear also functioned to hide the true nature of its report. All images selected contained only the ad, and the controversial content, with all other posts absent from view. That is, had readers been able to see the post above and below the pairings, they would have easily gleaned the highly specific nature of the small number of accounts Media Matters chose to follow. 
Media Matters <clears throat> Media Matters chose every pairing in its article using this deceptive technique, hiding its deceit through even more deceit. Telling Media Matter users, or no, tellingly, Media Matters used X's privacy feature in order to hide its methodology from its readers. That is, Media Matters set this account to private, blocking anyone from seeing which accounts Media Matters actually followed, thus disallowing anyone from understanding how its feed was manipulated. Indeed, Media Matters at no point includes images with any information about the account that was exposed to these images. The cropped nature of Media Matters' deceptive screenshots leaves its profile picture out of frame. Accordingly, Media Matters created the impression that these pairings were organic, accurate, and representative of the typical, typical ex-users experience, which actually and demonstrably misled users and advertisers, causing harm to X-Corp. Media Matters caused advertisers to believe the pairings were organic. After the publication of the Media Matters false smear on November 16, 2023, advertisers pulled their ads from the site, which, as Media Matters admits, only happened after it reported that X was placing ads alongside white nationalist and pro-Nazi content. Included in these companies, which all referenced anti-Semitic content and their withdrawal from X, are Comcast. After Media Matters, November article featured a contrived, misleading, and inflammatory image showing an ad for Xfinity next to pro-Nazi post, its parent company Comcast decided to pull all ads from Comcast for Comcast entities from X. NBC Universal. As the parent company of Bravo and a subsidiary of Comcast, NBC Universal pulled all advertising from X. After publication of the article. Apple. The day after publication of the article, which also featured an Apple ad contrived to be placed next to French content, Apple, one of X's largest clients, pulled all of its ads from the platform. IBM, as previously discussed, IBM pulled all ads immediately after the publication of the article. Media Matters manipulation was so severe that companies not even featured in the article also pulled ads from X. These companies include Lionsgate, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Paramount, and Sony. Media Matters intended to do to harm X's revenue stream. Media Matters represents itself as, quote, a progressive research and information center dedicated to comprehensively monitoring, analyzing, and correcting conservative misinformation in the U.S. media, end quote. That is from their website at the About Us section. Since its launch in 2004, it has engaged in an all-out campaign of, quote, guerrilla warfare and sabotage on conservative news sources. In this context, X Corp and Elon Musk are a critical media matters target because X is the most prominent online platform that permits users to share all viewpoints, whether liberal or conservative. And Mr. Musk is the most prominent voice on the platform and a passionate supporter of free speech. In taking down two forces it already found objectionable, Media Matters had the chance to starve X of ad revenue and thereby silence all of the voices on X. Nothing in Media Matters' campaign was coincidental or accidental, and its guerrilla attack on X is working, driving away X's advertisers and revenue precisely as intended. 
First cause of action, interference with con contract. X Corp realleges and incorporates by reference the above allegations. At all relevant times, defendants were aware that the plaintiff contracted with various third parties, including but not limited to Apple, NBC, Universal, Comcast, Bravo, Apple, they list Apple twice, and IBM to sell ads on the X platform, as clearly demonstrated by the many articles written by defendants on the topic. Defendant Media Matters intentionally interfered with contracts between X Corp and its advertisers, including but not limited to Apple, NBC Universal, Comcast, Bravo, Apple. <laughs> they copy pasted this list. And IBM, all clients with existing advertisement agreements that were casualties of defendants' misrepresentations and ceased advertising on the X platform as a direct result. Second cause of action business disparagement. X Corp realleges and incorporates by reference the above allegations. Defendant Media Matters made statements that disparaged the quality of X's, X Corp's product, which is X. Defendant Media Matters made these statements as statements of fact, not opinion. Defendant Media Matters represented that X has been placing, quote unquote, advertisements next, next to anti-Semitic and racist materials. It represented that it found these materials next to the advertisements. As extensively explained above, these statements made by the Defendant Media Matters were false. Defendant Media Matters intentionally made these statements with clear malice, well aware of their falsity. Indeed. X Corp suffered monetary loss. Oh, yeah. As a result of these statements, companies mentioned in Defendant's false misleading article pulled their advertising from X indefinitely, and so did companies not mentioned in the article. Third cause of action. Interference with prospective economic advantage. X Corp realleges and incorporates the above. X Corp was engaged in economic relationships that would have resulted in an economic benefit to X Corp. X Corp had relationships with advertisers that pulled their spending in light of Defendant Media Matters article and had every reason to suspect that these relationships would continue. At all relevant times, Defendant Media Matters knew of these relationships as they were described in its reporting. Defendant Media Matters engaged in wrongful conduct that disrupted X Corp's economic relationships. Through extensive deception and misrepresentation, Defendant Media Matters caused advertisers to lose faith in X Corp's abilities to monitor and curate content, thereby leading them to break off their lucrative relationships and any future continued relationships. Defendant Media Matters acted with the intent to disrupt these relationships. Media Matters' actions con continued its expressly declared guerrilla war on media it dislikes and its systematic harassing attacks on X-Corp and Elon Musk. X-Corp was harmed as a result of Defendant Media Matters' actions. It lost advertisers as a result. Media Matters' actions were undoubtedly a substantial factor in causing that harm. Defendant's website even notes... X Corp's relationship fell apart after, so they even claim victory over it. That's going to be that's going to be a mistake at the end, because they're. I mean, they're admitting, yeah, yep, we defamed you, we successfully defamed you, raw, yay. All right, prayer for relief. Wherefore, plaintiff X Corp prays for judgment in its favor and following relief. One, actual and consequential damages caused by defendant's misconduct including but not limited to all general and special damages or special damages. Two, a preliminary and permanent injunction ordering defendants to immediately delete, take down or otherwise remove the article entitled, quote, 
As Musk endorses anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, X has been placing ads for Apple, Bravo, IBM, Oracle, and Xfinity next to pro-Nazi content from its web. Delete it from all websites and social media accounts owned, controlled, or operated directly or indirectly by defendants. 3. X-Corp's cost and attorney's fees to litigate this action. And 4. For such, for such other and further relief as the court may deem just and proper. Respectfully, John Sullivan. And Judd E. Stone II. Judd, I mean, this de dude, he's definitely from Texas. His name's Judd. And Christopher Hilton. Okay, SL Law PLLC. The other one is Stone Hilton PLLC. All right, so that's the filing from Musk and X. S that's strong. They're so busted. <laughs> they are they are so busted. That is <clears throat> That is a powerful lawsuit. All right. So this other thing is uh True Social. So they posted this um Today, True Social filed a defamation lawsuit that is likely unprecedented in history, incorporating 20 publications and even more may be added. All of them published the same false information about True Social and refused to fully retract their stories. <clears throat> Pardon me. I appreciated that True Social included a link to their filing because you can't find it on court listener yet <clears throat> or on pacer in the circuit court of the 12th district 12th judicial district in and for sarasota county florida civil division this is trump media and technology group corp versus a bunch of other media corps This case is about an unprecedented and seemingly coordinated media campaign by no less than 20 major media outlets to attack Trump Media and Technology Group, TMTG, and its social media platform, True Social, by falsely reporting that TMTG had lost $73 million. Do you guys remember seeing that report? I remember it. This number was an utter fabrication. Each defendant in apparent coordination reported the exact same false number within approximately 24 hours of one another, each citing to a, a Public Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, filing in which the mystery $73 million loss appears nowhere. This was a coordinated effort to damage TMTG's reputation, degrade the firm's financial standing, freeze its access to capital and torpedo the anticipated merger between digital world acquisition corporation or DWAC and TMTG on November 13th, 2023 DWAC submitted an amended S4 registration statement with the sec, which marked a major milestone milestone toward the completion of the planned merger between DWAC and TMTG. 
TMTG publicly stated that the S4 was good news for TMTG. Because this filing involves TMTG and President Trump's Truth Social, however, these defendants ignored or downplayed TMTG's public statements regarding a positive development. Instead, they deliberately or recklessly published false financial information to advance a preferred and coordinated narrative harmful to TMTG. All defendants ran nearly identical headlines that reported some variation of, quote, Trump's truth social, having lost, quote, $73 million. On November 14, 2023, TMTG contacted each of these, so, uh, each of these media defendants notifying them in writing of their error, specifying that their statements about a supposed $73 million loss were false and defamatory, and demanding a retraction and apology. To date, while some defendants have issued little-noticed corrections or updates, none have retracted the defamatory articles, publicly apologized, or taken any other steps to ameliorate the continuing damage. Although TMTG will continue pursuing its mission and planned merger with DWAC, the widespread misreporting across the entire media landscape has nonetheless deeply harmed TMTG, eroding faith in the company's operations and management and making it more difficult for TMTG to raise additional capital to fund operations while its planned merger with DWAC is pending SEC review. Existing investors and potential investors alike were concerned by the false stories. TMTG intends to hold these reckless and malicious media outlets to account for their false reporting and for their seemingly coordinated effort to destroy TMTG and True Social. Parties. The puppies are barking about something else, and it's the alert bark. It's the danger, danger, Will Robinson bark. Kind of thing. There's probably either a squirrel on the porch or a delivery. Okay, so parties are... Is there a delivery? Oh, it's my wife. Danger, the wife is home. That's what it is. Danger, the wife is home. <laughs> That's what it is. Plaintiff TMTG is a Delaware corporation headquartered in Sarasota, Florida. Defendant Guardian News and Media. Okay, these are the defendants. Guardian... Hollywood Reporter, McClatchy News Company, which owns Miami Herald and others, Alex Minna of the Miami Herald, he's the executive editor, Reuters News and Media, Rolling Stone, Next Star Media, which uh, owns The Hill, Defendant Deadline Hollywood, that's Deadline News, Accredited Capital LLC, or Benzinga, MarketWatch.com, Forbes Media, Axios Media, The Daily Beast, GO Media, which is Gizmodo, Salon, New York Daily News, Newsweek Digital, MSNBC Cable, Mediaite LLC, DMG Media, which does Daily Mail, CNBC um, as well. Okay, yeah, so that's them. And they said they could add more. Jurisdiction and venue. This court has subject matter jurisdiction over this cause the action, blah, blah, blah. Florida law. Damages exceed 50 grand. Defendants are subject to personal jurisdiction in Florida pursuant to Florida's long arm statute because third parties in Florida accessed 
the defamatory materials they published, and it was directed at a Florida-based social media company. Venue for this action is proper in Florida. It makes sense they would be in Florida. That's where that's where TMTG is. TMTG is a startup technology company that created and operates the social media platform True Social. Though relying on bridge financing to compete against dominant tech giants worth tens of billions of dollars, Truth Social developed its own infrastructure that now gives millions of Americans the opportunity to freely express their views on culture, politics, art, sports, entertainment, and any other topic. In October 2021, TMTG and DWAC, a special purpose acquisition company, announced their intent to effect a merger, which would result in TMTG becoming a publicly traded company, thereby enabling retail investors who support TMTG's mission to invest directly in the company. Completing the merger is a crucial part of TMTG's business plan, as repeatedly expressed in public statements by both TMTG and DWAC, and in DWAC's public filings with the SEC. On November 13, 2023, DWAC submitted an amended registration statement on Form S-4 to the SEC, a major milestone toward completing the planned merger. The S-4 is publicly available. That same day, and continuing into the next, numerous media outlets, including the named defendants, in apparent coordination, ran materially identical headlines and stories, each citing to the S-4 filing with the SEC, and falsely claiming that the S-4 showed that TMTG lost $73 million. It makes, this makes me think of those collages that Patriots in Control does. Um where he has like, he makes an image of all the headlines saying the same thing um, to show the coordination in the media. And it's just, it's just like what Rush Limbaugh used to do where he would play clips of all the media talking heads saying the exact same thing, or he would read headlines from various news outlets saying the same thing. All coordinating. My, uh, the one that stands out the most to me is gravitas. Remember that clip, remember that clip from Rush back in the, in the 2000s, uh, where the media all decided that they would talk about gravitas and the Bush administration and Dick Cheney, he has a certain amount of gravitas. <laughs> they all use the same, the same adjective. <laughs> all right, the $73 million figure appears nowhere in the S4 or anywhere else. It was a complete fabrication, a fabrication made by these 20 defendants within a 24-hour period. All right, I want to pause and point something out about that. That is a tactic I see used by media on the left and the right, where they will make a claim, and they might even link or take a screenshot of a document, tell you it says a certain thing, when in fact it does not. But because people see the image of the document, or the link to the document in the article, they will believe the claim that the article advances or the influencer or whatever advances without ever looking at the document themselves. And I see this tactic used all the time by media across the spectrum. Um, I don't, I can't, I don't know exactly what the name of it is. Um, I can't think of the name of the tactic right now, but it's common and it's something to really watch out for. I see people do it on the right quite a bit. I can't say that they do it more than the left. I don't know, but it seems pretty equal, honestly. Um, but it's something I've learned to go and check 
Um, all right, one recent example might be, it's not that recent, but that claim that um, Hunter paid Joe Biden $50,000 in rent uh, for that property, that was totally false. And, and many of the people sharing it, like the claim, people had a screenshot of the document and were sharing the document around. And you could read the document, but it, and if you read it carefully, you would realize it didn't say what the claim advanced. Uh, but people just went ahead and shared it anyway and believed it. Same thing happened with the IRS, the 80,000 IRS agents or whatever. Uh, same thing happened with uh, something else within the past year or so. Um, there was something else. I don't remember. But... Oh, it's happening. It's happened with the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers trials, where they will cite a filing in that or cite a hearing and the transcript from it, but they'll misrepresent what it says or what the claim is or what it proves in order to advance whatever narrative. That happens on both sides. So, anyway, that's what they engaged in here. Now, this is, uh, I'm not going to read all this. What they have here is a series of quotes showing the articles and the headline and then the what the body of the article says from each of the outlets named and they're all saying the same thing talking about 73 million 73 million lost over and over and over again which again is nowhere in the filing that they claim they got that information from and they name in these dark in these articles they name the filing as an example from mediaite TMTG's merger with DWAC remains stalled. The S4 form shows that True Social lost $50 million on $1.4 million of net sales last year. Added together, True Social appears to have brought in $3.7 in revenue, but that's compared to a whopping loss of $73. On and on. Okay. The statements listed above um, in paragraph 42A through T and also found in the corresponding exhibits, A through T, are collectively the defamatory statements. The Miami Herald article referenced in paragraph 44B and attached to ex as exhibit B purports to be a republication of the report from The Hill. And the Miami Herald article referenced in paragraph 44BB and attached at exhibit BB purports to be a republication of the report of the New York Daily News. Circular reporting. They're all circular reporting each other. Do, 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 do. The $73 million loss figure does not appear anywhere in Dwack's S4 filing, and the defendants knew that it did not, or were at least reckless in their disregard for the truth, because each of them had access to the publicly available S4 that was the purported basis of their articles. Indeed, many defendants cited to and or directly quoted from the filing. Another false statement. See, I think uh, the defense here will be the media companies will say, yeah, it would be added up all the losses that we think True Social has had, and that's where we get the $73 million loss figure. But they all did that and then cited the S4 document as though it came from that document. So they misrepresented how they got to that figure. If they can even come up with any way in which that figure is true, like they can come up with any kind of math that would plausibly sum to $73 million, they didn't say that in their articles. They didn't say this is how we got that figure. They cited this S4 document. Another false statement made by 19 of the 20 defendants, all except for Axios, 
was to claim that the SEC filing showed a loss of $50 million in 2022. No such loss is shown on the DWAC S4. Each of the defamatory articles has been viewed millions of times, including by residents of Florida. As a result of these widespread lies, TMTG has suffered actual damages. Committed and potential investors have reacted negatively to the false news of TMTG supposedly losing $73 million, and TMTG's ability to raise additional capital has been impaired. Defendants are are ostensibly in the business of publishing factual information. However, their business models revolve around generating clicks and driving views to their websites. In this case, defendants use the occurrence of a news event, the filing of DeWax S4 with the SEC, a significant milestone in TMTG's proposed merger with DeWax as a pretext to intentionally or recklessly report the fabricated $73 million loss figure and sensationalize the news with anti-Trump clickbait articles. The incredible circumstances of all 20 defendants publishing nearly identical articles within hours of one another using the same fabricated figures that appear nowhere in the S4 filing upon which they ostensibly rely would seem nearly miraculous were it a coincidence. Instead, this chorus of falsehood evinces a deliberate, malicious, and coordinated attack on TMTG and Truth Social. Upon information and belief, there are likely to be other parties involved in this coordinated campaign that would stand to benefit from the damages caused to TMTG. Cause of action, count one, defamation. Plaintiff incorporates by reference the above. November 13th and 14th, defendants engaged in a concerted effort to destroy TMTG. Defendants have spread the lie that the public SEC filing by Dwack showed that TMTG lost $73 million since its launch. Defendants' defamatory statements are false. Defendants published these articles to residents in Florida and directed the articles at a Florida social media company. Defendants used their lies to drive viewers to their company to increase their own revenue streams. Defendants published the defamatory statements knowing they were false or, were rec- or with reckless disregard for the truth. Information regarding the true number was publicly available in the DWAC S4 filing with the SEC. The defendants reported to rely upon, and in many cases cited to and quoted from that SEC filing. Defendants went forward with this lie, publishing it because of their political animus and the opportunity to increase their own revenue streams. The defamatory statements constitute defamation per se, because the defamatory meaning is obvious on its face. Claiming that a company posted a $73 million loss when it did not is obviously defamatory because it creates a false negative impression about the financial condition of the company. The defamatory statements have directly and proximately caused TMDG to suffer actual damages in Florida where it does business. These damages were foreseeable to the defendants. Defendants published the defamatory statements knowingly, intentionally, willfully, wantonly, and maliciously with intent to harm plaintiff or in blatant disregard for the substantial likelihood of causing harm, particularly in Florida, thereby entitling TMDG an award of punitive damages. As a direct and proximate result of the misconduct of defendants, TMTG is entitled to compensatory, special, and punitive damages, as well as disgorgement of any and all income defendants have made off of their lies about TMTG. Count two, injurious falsehood against all defendants. Plaintiff is a technology company in Florida, blah, blah, blah. As 
repeatedly stated by TMTG and Dweck, the completion of their merger is a crucial part of TMTG's business plan. Also crucial is the continued raising of capital to fund TMTG's operations and enable it to compete with TMTG's much larger competitors. Defendants' false assertions directly concern TMTG's business. Defendants intended for their false assertions to gravely harm TMTG, to harm their reputation, financial standing, access to capital, and prospects for completing its anticipated merger with Dweck. Defendants reasonably recognized and intended that the publication of its assertions about TMTG would result in pecuniary losses. Don't say that word often. Pecuniary. That's your word of the day, folks. Pecuniary. TMTG has suffered direct, direct pecuniary losses as a result of defendants' accusations, including costs associated with lost business opportunities and resources expended to defend itself against defendants' false statements. Prayer for relief. All right, this is what they are asking for. A, an award of compensatory special and punitive damages, as well as disgorgement of any and all income defendants have made off of their lies about TMTG in the amount of, okay, I got to count zeros here, hundreds, thousands, 1.5 billion. They're suing for 1.5 billion. Wow. Injunctive relief prohibiting the publication or republication of the defamatory statements. An award of plaintiff's cost associated with this action, including but not limited to his reasonable attorney fees and expenses. And D, such other and further relief as the court deems just and appropriate. They demand a jury trial on all issues trialable. Signed by Jesse Roberts of and Jesse Banal of the Banal Law Group. Nice. Now I can't believe they would get 1.5 billion. Um yeah, that's right, music and fiction. 1.5 billion collectively, not 1.5 billion from each defendant. That's a huge ask. <laughs> but how do you quantify the potential damage that they did? I mean, they're trying to sink an entire company. If TMTG and Dwack have a projection of earning $1.5 billion in investment and income and revenue over the next one to three, five years, however many, then yeah, you could see how they could make that argument that they were harmed by that, potentially harmed by that much. I don't think they'll get that much, but... Heck, what if they get 500 million? What if they get a third of that? What if they get a 500 million as a settlement? That'd be huge. Yeah, 70 it's seven yeah, music conviction, quick math, it's 75 million per defendant. All right. Let's go on to the next case, which is Judge Chutkin in D.C. I got to stretch for a minute. All right. Um, we read the motion to dismiss based on immunity uh, last time we were here. That was this one. Motion to dismiss indictment based on presidential immunity. 
And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that. But they filed other motions to dismiss as well. Trump's team did. They filed one, President Trump's motion to dismiss the indictment based on constitutional grounds and memorandum in support. And then same day, they also filed a motion to dismiss based on statutory grounds. And also on that same day, this was all in 1023, right? Yeah, all in 1023. They filed one to dismiss motion for selective and vindictive prosecution. So I thought we would go over to these. I'm not going to have time to go through all of these. Um, I have some concern that this might be largely repetitive of what we read on Monday. But where it gets repetitive, I will skip. I find it interesting to go through these arguments. So that's what we're going to do next. That's right, Jatriot. More important than the money that TMG might get is the ruling that they were defamed. Even if the judgment is a dollar, um, they get a dollar for it. Uh, the ruling would would be very good and precedent setting. Okay. This is President Trump's motion to dismiss the indictment based on constitutional grounds and memorandum in support. This is in the D.C. case. The prosecution opens its indictment by stating that President Trump, quote, had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election, including his deeply held view that there had been fraud and other irregularities, during, quote, during the election and that he had won. These points are not in dispute. Nonetheless, in an astonishing display of doublethink, the prosecution simultaneously claims that President Trump, simply by speaking his mind and petitioning for a redress of grievances, also somehow conspired to, quote, defraud the United States, oppress rights, and obstruct an official proceeding. Attempting to explain this obvious contradiction, the prosecution argues that there was no, quote, outcome determinative fraud in the election, whatever that means, and that President Trump supposedly knew this because some government officials, quote, notified him that his claims were untrue. If there is any constant in our democratic system of governance, it is that the marketplace of ideas, not the mandates of government functionaries or partisan prosecutors, determines the scope of public debate. Countless millions of live, or countless of millions believe, as President Trump consistently has and currently does, that fraud and irregularities pervaded the 2020 presidential election. As the indictment itself alleges, President Trump gave voice to these concerns and demanded that politicians in a position to restore integrity to our elections not just talk about the problem, but investigate and resolve it. State legislators and election officials, vice president and other government officials, state officials, vice president, members of Congress, etc. Right. The first amendment embraces and encourages exactly this kind of behavior. 
and therefore states in the clearest of terms that, quote, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Uh, that would be the U.S. Constitution Amendment 1. The indictment taken as true violates this core principle as to each count. Accordingly, the court should dismiss the indictment in its entirety. Additionally, as the United States Senate has previously tried and acquitted President Trump for charges arising from the same course of conduct alleged in the indictment, the impeachment and double jeopardy clauses both bar retrial before this court and require dismissal. Finally, because of our country's long-standing tradition of forceful political advocacy regarding perceived fraud and irregularities in numerous presidential elections, President Trump lacked fair notice that his advocacy in this instance could be criminalized. Thus, the court should dismiss the indictment under the Due Process Clause as well. Argument. Quote, in ruling on a motion to dismiss for failure to state an offense, a district court is typically limited to reviewing the face of the indictment and, more specifically, the language used to charge the crimes. United States versus Sunya. When considering a motion to dismiss, the court must review the face of the indictment, and the indictment must be viewed as a whole, and the allegations must be, must be accepted as true at this stage of the proceeding. United States versus Weeks. President Trump fully denies the allegations in the indictment, which are referenced in this motion and memorandum. Rather, this memorandum sets forth the facts alleged in the indictment so that their legal sufficiency may be assessed for a dismissed motion. One, the indictment should be dismissed because it seeks to criminalize core political speech and advocacy protected by the First Amendment. First and foremost, the indictment must be dismissed because it seeks to criminalize core political speech, and advocacy that lies in the First Amendment. This is the same thing I just said. It's a okay, what's the footnote? As explained in President Trump's motion to dismiss based on presidential immunity, all acts charged in the indictment were performed within the outer perimeter of his official duties as president. As explained in that motion and conceded in the government's blasting game amicus brief, the fact that President Trump's alleged actions were conducted within his official duties is fully consistent with those actions also involving the exercise of his First Amendment rights. It is commonplace for President's speech to have dual roles, both an official and personal character. Yeah, I lost my place. Okay, there we go. The government may not prohibit core political speech on matters of public concern, regardless of its supposed truth or falsity. In United States versus Alvarez, the Supreme Court affirmed or reaffirmed the broad scope of the First Amendment holding it protects even the verifiably false claim that the Speaker had been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Alvarez produced multiple opinions, but on one key point, all nine justices were unanimous. Under the First Amendment, the government may not prohibit or criminalize speech on disputed social, political, and historical issues simply because the government determines that some views are true and others all are false. Quote, our constitutional tradition stands against the idea that we need Oceana's Ministry of Truth. 1984 by George Orwell. The four-justice plurality opinion of Justice Kennedy was emphatic on this point, 
rejecting the notion that, quote, government may decree this speech about receiving medals to be a criminal offense, whether shouted from the rooftops or made in a barely audible whisper. As such, an approach would endorse government authority to compile a list of subjects about which false statements are punishable. That governmental power has no clear limiting principle. Thus, disavowing Oceana's Ministry of Truth, Justice Kennedy rejected any rule that would give governance a broad sensorial power unprecedented in this court's cases or in our constitutional tradition. The mere potential for the exercise of that power cast a chill, a chill the First Amendment cannot permit if free speech, thought, and discourse are likely to remain a foundation of our freedom. Instead, the remedy for speech that is false is speech that is true. This is the ordinary course in a free society. The response to the unreasoned is the rational, to the uninformed, the enlightened, to the straight-out lie, the simple truth. The theory of our Constitution is, quote, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. Freedom of speech and thought flows not from the benefit, beneficence of the state, but from the inalienable rights of the person. And suppression of speech by the government can make exposure of falsity more difficult, not less so. These ends are not well served when the government seeks to orchestrate public discussion through content-based mandates. Quoting Abrams versus United States, quote, only a weak society needs government protection or intervention before it pursues its resolve to preserve the truth. Truth needs neither handcuffs nor a badge for its vindication. Justice Breyer's two justice concurrence in Alvarez likewise endorsed this same point, quoting Justice Alito for the proposition that, quote, there are broad areas in which any attempt by the state to penalize purportedly false speech would present a grave and unacceptable danger of suppressing truthful speech, which include laws restricting false statements about philosophy, religion, history, the social sciences, the arts and the like. These topics, which are often the subject of vigorous public debate, rarely have clear or verifiable answers, hence the controversy. And therefore, citizens must give or must be given breathing room to speak their minds without fear of, as here, being criminally prosecuted by the government officials that do not like what they have to say. Indeed, Justice Breyer concluded that, quote, the threat of criminal prosecution for making a false statement can inhibit the speaker from making true statements, thereby chilling a kind of speech that lies at the First Amendment's heart. Justice Breyer further emphasized that criminalizing supposedly false statements on such not easily verifiable, politically controversial topics provides a weapon to a government broadly empowered to prosecute falsity without more. And those who are unpopular may fear that the government will use that weapon selectively. Justice Alito's three-justice dissent in Alvarez, the opinion least protective of speech in that case, endorsed the same conclusion. As noticed above, or noted above, Justice Alito's dissent recognized that, quote, 
There are broad areas in which any attempt by the state to penalize purportedly false speech would present a grave and unacceptable danger of suppressing truthful speech. Laws restricting false statements about philosophy, religion, history, the social sciences, the arts, and other matters of public concern would present such a threat. The point is not that there is no such thing as truth or falsity in these areas or that the truth is always impossible to ascertain, but rather that it is perilous to permit the state to be the arbiter of truth. Well said, Justice. Another quote, even where there is a wide scholarly consensus concerning a particular matter, the truth is served by allowing that consensus to be challenged without fear of reprisal. Today's accepted wisdom sometimes turns out to be mistaken. And in these contexts, even a false statement may be deemed to make a valuable contribution to public debate, since it brings about the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. That is a quote from New York Times versus Sullivan, quoting John Stuart Mill on liberty. In addition, another quote, allowing the state to prescribe false statements in these areas also opens the door for the state to use its power for political ends, a concern that is maximal in this case, where a sitting president's administration is prosecuting his chief political opponent for supposedly making false claims challenging the validity of the sitting president's election. Quote, if some false statements about historical events may be banned, how certain must it be that a statement is false before the ban may be upheld? And who should make that calculation? While our cases prohibiting viewpoint discrimination would fetter the state's power to some degree, the potential for abuse of power in these areas is simply too great. Thus, Alvarez reflects the Supreme Court's unanimous consensus that claims about widely disputed social, political, and historical questions, i.e. matters of public concern, are protected by the First Amendment regardless of the government's view on supposed truth or falsity. In fact, as Justice Alito's discussion demonstrates, demonstrates such claims are protected by the First Amendment, especially when the government deems them false. Thus, claims about the integrity of the 2020 presidential election, including claims that the election was rigged, stolen, and or tainted by outcome-determinative fraud, are fully protected by the First Amendment, regardless of the government's view of their truth or falsity. Indeed, in such areas, quote, it is perilous to permit the state to be the arbiter of truth. This conclusion that the First Amendment fully protects opinions and claims on widely disputed political and historical issues such as the integrity of the 2020 presidential election, draws further support from the most basic principles of the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence. Such claims constitute, one, core political speech, on, two, matters of enormous public concern, where suppressing the speech constitutes, three, forbidden viewpoint discrimination. Speech on matters of public concern. Quote, Speech on matters of public concern is at the heart of the First Amendment's protection. That is because speech concerning public affairs is more than self-expression. It is the essence of self-government. Accordingly, speech on public issues occupies the highest rung of the hierarchy of First Amendment values and is entitled to special protection. 
Speech deals with matters of public concern when it can be fairly considered as relating to any matter of political, social, or other concern to the community, or when it is subject to legitimate news interest that is a subject of general interest and of value and concern to the public. And Justice Alito's dissent in Alvarez explicitly stated that the areas where the First Amendment does not permit the criminalization of supposedly false statements can be summarized as those involving matters of public concern. Speech disputing the outcome of the 2020 election unquestionably constitutes speech on matters of public concern. Core political speech. Indeed, such speech constitutes core political speech, and and First Amendment protection is at its zenith when the government attempts to restrict core political speech. No form of speech is entitled to greater constitutional protection than core political speech. This is especially true of speech relating to elections, since the First Amendment's, quote, constitutional guarantee has its fullest and most urgent application precisely to conduct to the conduct of campaigns for political office. Viewpoint discrimination. Further, attempts to prohibit or criminalize claims on political disputes, such as the integrity and outcome of the 2020 presidential election, inevitably target speech on the basis of viewpoint, which is the least tolerable of First Amendment violations. Quote, it is axiomatic that the government may not regulate speech based on its substantive content or the message it conveys. Rosenberger versus Rector. When the government targets um, no, when, quote, when the government targets not subject matter, but particular views taken by speakers on a subject, the violation of the First Amendment is all the more blatant. Viewpoint discrimination is thus an egregious form of content discrimination. The government must ab- abstain from regulating speech with a specific motivating ideology or the opinion or perspective of the speaker's rationale for the restriction. The fact that the indictment alleges that the speech at issue was supposedly according to the prosecution false makes no difference. Under the First Amendment, each individual American participating in a free marketplace of ideas, not the federal government, decides for him or herself what is true and false on great disputed social and political questions. As noted above, quote, our constitutional tradition stands against the idea that we need Oceania's ministry of truth. Permitting the government to decree this false speech to be a criminal offense would endorse government authority to to compile a list of subjects about which false statements are punishable. That governmental power has no clear limiting principle. Thus, Falsity alone may not suffice to bring the speech outside the First Amendment. Absent from these few categories, where the law allows content-based regulation of speech, is any general exception to the First Amendment for false statements. This comports with the common understanding that some false statements are inevitable if there is to be an open and vigorous expression of views in public and private conversation, expression the First Amendment seeks to guarantee. The indictment, therefore, attempts to criminalize core 
political speech and political advocacy, which is categorically impermissible under the First Amendment. As the Supreme Court held in Texas versus Johnson, quote, if there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. That reminds me of something. That reminds me of um, Thaddeus Russell and his book about history and his uh, general thesis that throughout our history, it is the minorities who get, who are like, are the catalyst for liberty. Um, not sure. I, that's not exactly how he would say it, but the point of it is that when you look at, for examples in history of where freedom is expanded, it's almost always based around the minority gaining protection and um, advancing some aspect of freedom. So like, for example, with slavery, you had a minority population that was wrongfully, morally wrongfully, ethically wrongfully um, mistreated, enslaved. And um, it was through there ending slavery for that minority, the cause of the minority in that scenario ensured freedom beyond just them, but for everyone to not be enslaved, regardless of their status. Right. And then like with, uh, he also cites like cross dressers and other, like basically like the people on the fringe of society, um, earn freedom for the individual through their minority cases. Um, and like it's the it's the minority who's always suffers the most per persecution, and it's their cause that ends up winning freedom for all. So like, we have some instances like right now where people with minority views or seeming minority views are persecuted for those views, but within that is a cause for personal liberty that is worth defending, and it doesn't really matter what their idea is or what their view is, what puts them on this fringe or this minority status, as long as it's moral, there's not something about it that's amoral um, or offensive. Actually, actually, even if it is immoral, even if it is immoral, but as long as it doesn't harm someone beyond themselves, right? Then it's a cause that, um, it's a cause that furthering actually ends up winning more freedom and more protection for the freedom of individuals everywhere. I hope that makes sense. That is Russell's pretty interesting. I don't agree with him on everything, but his thesis on that, uh, that the minority is like the inflection point for the cause of freedom, I think is very, very true. Okay. Um, Is the central tenet of the First Amendment the government must, must remain neutral in the market? Yeah, it's a central tenet. This is okay. Here's a okay, as if to make my point for me. Quote It is a central tenet of the First Amendment that the government must remain neutral in the marketplaces of ideas. That is Hustler Mag Incorporated versus Falwell. All right, so that's a great example. Hustler Mag, the, the minority view that Hustler Mag was advancing, advanced the cause of free speech, but Hustler. As an entity, we would regard as an immoral outlet, right? Or most people would. That, hey, it's pornography, which is 
in poor taste at best. Um, the battle over whether or not pornography has some sort of free speech protection afforded to it by the U.S. Constitution. Guess what? It does. It does. It doesn't mean you have to like it or you have to regard it as moral or good. You can you can hate it. You can regard it as absolute, utter, utter evil, sinful trash. But as long as it doesn't harm another person, it is still a protected form of speech. So right there, the minority view of that being protected form of speech wins liberties for other forms of speech. Next case, above all else, quote, above all else, the First Amendment means that government has no power to restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, subject matter, or its content. Police Department of City of Chicago versus Mosley. That is right. The indictment here does not merely criminalize conduct with an incidental impact on protected speech. Instead, it directly targets core protected speech and activity. For this reason, it is categorically invalid under the First Amendment. Quote, clearly government has no power to restrict such activity because of its message. For similar reasons, the indictment is invalid under any level of scrutiny. As noted above, the indictment imposes viewpoint-based restrictions on core political speech on matters of the highest public concern with extremely severe penalties. And thus, if any scrutiny applies, it is the strictest form of scrutiny. Yet regardless, the prosecution cannot show any interest, let alone a compelling or substantial one, in punishing such First Amendment protected activity. The prosecution has no valid interest in silencing disfavored viewpoints or preventing people from advocating such disfavored viewpoints on our two government officials. The indictment is precisely tailored to violate free speech rights, <laughs> not tarot narrowly tailored to avoid violating them. Oh, this is great. I love that it says that the indictment is precisely tailored to violate free speech rights because I I think this indictment is precisely tailored to advance uh, a plan that Trump is integral to. <laughs> so it's like, that's like bicameral where it's like true in two ways, right? Like instead of it being bicameral where it's like opposing ideas that we're holding at the same time, it's a uh, complimentary ideas. The indictment is precisely tailored to violate free speech rights uh, so that it'll get thrown out uh, and set precedent. Um, and then it's also precisely tailored because it's part of a plan that Trump is integral to. All right. This is the antithesis of narrow tailoring. Finally, if the indictment invalidly applies the language of the statute that renders the statute both unconstitutional as applied and unconstitutional in its face under the First Amendment overbreadth doctrine, under the prosecution's interpretation, the statute sweeps in the criminalization of a large amount of large amounts of pure speech, and thus it suffers from overbreadth. That is, quote, not only real, but substantial as well judged in relation to the statute's plainly, plainly legitimate sweep. Next part, First Amendment protection on for opinions on politically charged disputes. Because the First Amendment confers absolute protection on public statements about hotly disputed social, political, and historical topics and other matters of public concern, including those which are supposedly false, it confers the same protection on the same statements made in advocating for the government officials to act on one's views. The First Amendment protects the right, quote, to petition the government for a redress of grievances, 
in the same clause as, quote, the freedom of speech. That would be U.S. Constitution Amendment 1. When it comes to what speech is protected, the right to petition is coextensive with the right to speak. A claim protected under the amendment's right to freedom of speech is equally protected when the same claim is made while while petitioning the government. As the Supreme Court stated, the right to petition is cut from the same cloth as the other guarantees of that amendment and is an assurance of a particular freedom of expression. For this reason, in McDonald versus Smith, the Supreme Court consulted the right to freedom of speech to determine what statements are protected when exercising the right to petition the government. McDonald concerned a libel lawsuit brought against a man who sent letters to President Reagan making allegedly libelous claims about a potential political nominee or appointee. The libel defendant claimed that he had absolute immunity from libel suit because the allegedly libelous statements were made in the course of petitioning the government. The Supreme Court rejected this claim, holding instead that the scope of First Amendment protection for claims made while petitioning the government officials is coextensive with the scope of First Amendment protection for public statements under the Free Speech Clause. Because libel falls within a well-established First Amendment exception, libel made in statements to government officials is likewise unprotected under the the Petition Clause of the First Amendment. In so holding... The Supreme Court made clear that the free speech clause and the petition clause are on identical footing, establishing the same levels of of protection for speech, quote, to accept petitioner's claim of absolute immunity would elevate the petition clause to special First Amendment status. The petition clause, however, was inspired by the same ideals of liberty and democracy that gave us the freedoms to speak, publish, and assemble. These First Amendment rights are inseparable and there is no sound basis for granting greater constitutional protection to statements made in a petition to the president than other First Amendment expressions. The same logic applies here. Just as there is, quote, no sound basis for granting greater protection to statements made in a petition than other First Amendment expressions, so also there is no sound basis for granting lesser constitutional protection to the same statements. After all, the petition clause reflects the same ideals of liberty and democracy that gave us the freedoms to speak, publish, and assemble. Thus, speech that is protected by the free speech clause when made in a public forum retains its full protection when it is made to government officials in the course of petitioning them to action. This conclusion draws further support from McDonald versus United States. In McDonald, the government prosecuted the governor of Virginia using an interpretation of the phrase official act in 18 U.S.C. 201 that would have criminalized a broad range of of ordinary political lobbying of public officials. Quote, Section 201 prohibits quid pro quo corruption, the exchange of a thing of value for an official act. In the government's view, nearly anything a a public official accepts from a campaign contribution to lunch counts as a quid, and a nearly and nearly anything a public official does from arranging a meeting to inviting a guest to an event counts as a quo the supreme court unanimous, unanimously held that quote in addition to being inconsistent with both text and precedent the government's expansive interpretation of official act 
would raise significant constitutional concerns, precisely because it threatened to criminalize a broad range of ordinary political activity done in furtherance of petitioning the government under the First Amendment. Conscientious public officials, and this is a quote, conscientious public officials arrange meetings for constituents, contact other officials on their behalf, and include them in events all the time. The basic compact underlying representative government assumes that public officials will hear from their constituents and act appropriately on their concerns. The government's position could cast a pall, pall of a potential prosecution over these relationships. Officials might wonder whether they could respond to even the most commonplace request for assistance and citizens with legitimate concerns might shrink from participating in democratic discourse. So also here, permitting the prosecution to criminalize First Amendment protected statements simply because they were made to government officials would violate, quote, the basic compact of representative government and cause citizens with legitimate concerns to shrink from participating in democratic discourse. I got to pause for a moment. This was from McDonald versus United States. This is Jack Smith's case, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, Virginia Governor Robert McDonald's conviction of honest services fraud. Yeah, this is Jack Smith's case that got thrown out. McDonald's conviction was vacated unanimously by the court on the grounds that the meaning of official act does not include merely setting up a meeting, calling another public official or hosting an event. So, okay, I, this is just something that you, you may not, I didn't, I thought this was the case when I saw McDonald, but... It mentioned Reagan, so I was like, wait a minute, is this the older case? This is, I love this. This is Trump, guys, this is Trump's attorney or attorneys. In their this motion to dismiss are quoting Supreme Court opinion in a ruling that overturned a conviction that special counsel Jack Smith brought. So they're using this against Jack Smith now. It's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. I love it. Okay, where was I? I had to make sure of that because that is just, that's, that's brilliant. And it's a, well, Cinco, it could be karma or it could be, it could be design. It could be design. I would just keep that in mind. It could be design. Good morning, mermaid. Glad you're here. All right. Where was I? All right. I, they're about to make a really brilliant point here about uh, COVID. Consider any number of disfavored claims on a host of controversial topics, all deemed to be demonstrably false and disinformation by the government at various times, such as claiming that masks do not stop the transmission of COVID-19 that vaccines do not stop the transmission of COVID-19, that COVID-19 originated from a lab in Wuhan, China, 
and that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. <clears throat> Can the government prosecute a citizen for attempting to, quote, defraud the United States by making supposedly false statements to government officials for opposing mask mandates by telling legislators that they don't stop transmission Two, opposing vaccine mandates by telling legislators they don't stop transmission. And three, urging the investigation of China by telling government officials that COVID-19 leaked from a lab. Under the First Amendment, the answer is no. And that absolutely applies to claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen as well. The First Amendment does not permit the government to prosecute a citizen for claiming that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Thus, the First Amendment, <clears throat> under the First Amendment, the prosecution cannot criminalize claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, and it cannot, by prosecution, seek to impose its view on a disputed political question like the integrity of the 2020 presidential election. Quote, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can describe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion. West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. Quote, at the heart of the First Amendment lies the principle that each person should decide for himself or herself the ideas and beliefs, beliefs deserving of expression, consideration, and adherence. Turner Broadcast versus FCC. Neither the federal executive branch nor the judicial branch, both of which are bound by the First Amendment, may dictate that such claims are criminally false. Claims about the integrity of the 2020 presidential election, including claims that the election was rigged or stolen, or that fraud or irregularities tainted that outcome in certain states across the nation, implicate all the fundamental First Amendment principles discussed above. They constitute core political speech, expressing a specific disfavored viewpoint, matters of enormous public concern that relate to widely disputed historical, social, and political questions that are not related, verifiable, or not readily verifiable or falsifiable. Thus, they lie at the heartland of the First, Amendment protect, First Amendment's protection, and the federal government may not dictate whether such claims are true or false, nor prosecute the purveyors of the allegedly false views. My friend Mermaid Miss K asked, is Jack part of the greater, great awakening? <laughs> I got it. <laughs> the great awakening. All right. Is Jack Smith part of the great awakening? I say yes. I say yes. I can't help but notice that Trump talks about Jack Smith like identical to how he talks about, about Mueller. It's like, it's like the exact same. It's like he he's from the very first moment he has cast Jack Smith as a character in his theater. A character in the squared circle. Right? Like he's a monster. Jack Smith is a monster. He's deranged. <laughs> Wait, okay, wait. This is especially true because the claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged or tainted by fraud and irregularity, unlike the libel claims at issue in McDonald, see Supra, do not involve easily verifiable facts. 
Okay, where does that one go? Concurring the judgment. Such claims require the assessment of mountains of information from which each person will draw competing inferences based on facts as well as their personal deep-seated political views and presuppositions. They are not readily verifiable or falsifiable. They relate to politically charged issues and people's assessment of them is deeply linked to their political predispositions and their trust in institutions, including governmental institutions. This is why Americans' opinions on these issues are profoundly divided, very much to this day. The First Amendment does not permit the prosecution to dictate what is true and what is false on such broad, vigorously disputed, politically charged questions, especially not in the context of a criminal prosecution that effectively seeks to criminalize a political viewpoint shared by over 100 million Americans. There's a footnote here. And it says, almost 40% of Americans, including almost 70% of Republicans, believe that the 2020 presidential election was tainted by fraud or irregularity. A number that is increasing and has increased since 2020. And that's even according to CNN. Quote, the share of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents who believe that President Joe Biden's 2020 election win was not legitimate has ticked back up, according to a new CNN poll fielded throughout July. 69% of Republicans, nice, and Republican leaners say Biden's win was not legitimate, up from 63% earlier this year and through last fall. Overall, 61% of Americans say Biden did legitimately win enough votes to win the presidency, and 38% believe that he did not. Among registered voters who say they cast about for Trump in 2020, 75% say they have doubts about Biden's legitimacy. Many millions of reasonable people believe that the 2020 presidential election was unfairly rigged against President Trump and that fraud and other irregularities tainted the election results. There is abundant public evidence providing a reasonable basis for these opinions. What is critical is that how one interprets this evidence depends on one's deep-seated political views, including one's trust in government institutions and government officials, among others. Different people will draw different inferences from such public evidence based on their deep-seated political views, and that is exactly what the First Amendment permits, even celebrates. Another footnote. Molly Hemingway rigged how the big media tech and Democrats seized our elections. 423-page book discussing changes to election procedures, flooding the system, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. This unconstitutional dynamic appears on the face of the indictment itself. The indictment repeatedly alleges that President Trump made, quote, knowingly false claims of election fraud. But in every case, the indictment's basis for the allegation that President Trump's claims were knowingly false is that, quote, a member of the political establishment, assure, I guess this isn't a quote, I shouldn't say quote, but it's almost a quote. The basis for that claim is that a member of the political establishment assured President Trump that they were false. Alleging that a series of government officials assured President Trump that his concerns about the election integrity were unwarranted. Under the First Amendment, President Trump and his supporters are entitled to mistrust the word of such establishment-based government officials and draw their own inferences from the facts. And neither the federal executive branch through the prosecution nor the judicial branch through this court may dictate what President Trump and others are required to believe or stay 
about this hotly disputed political question. Bravo. The prosecution, of course, may come to its own conclusions about such matters. It may hold hearings and conduct investigations to try to establish its own view and convince others of them. It may insist that the opinions of others, including President Trump, are wrong, baseless, stupid, even false and malicious. But it may not require Americans to subscribe to its views or punish them for expressing and advocating for different views. To do so violates the First Amendment. Under the First Amendment, the question of whether the 2020 presidential election was stolen from President Trump must be decided in, quote, the free marketplace of ideas, not in criminal prosecutions. For the foregoing reasons, the indictment violates the First Amendment in toto. It should be dismissed with prejudice. I kind of feel like clapping after that part. Next, President Trump's acquittal by the U.S. Senate bars criminal prosecution. The indictment must be dismissed because President Trump was impeached, tried by the Senate, and acquitted on articles of impeachment that arise from the same course of conduct as the criminal indictment. Under our system of separated powers, the executive branch lacks authority to second-guess the decision of the legislative branch on an issue that lies within the legislative branch's exclusive purview. The Constitution's plain text, structural principles of separation of powers, our history and tradition, and principles of double, double jeopardy bar the executive branch from seeking to recharge and retry a president who has already been impeached and acquitted in a trial before the U.S. Senate. The text of the Constitution straightforwardly provides that only a, quote, party convicted by the Senate may be charged by, quote, indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, not a party acquitted. As the Senate acquitted President Trump, the prosecution may not retry him in this court. To be removed from office, the president must be convicted by trial in the Senate which has exclusive authority under the Constitution for such trials. Quote, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6. Quote, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But... The party convicted shall nevertheless be liable to sub and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. Because the Constitution specifies that only the party convicted by trial in the Senate may be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, it presupposes that a president who is not convicted may not be subject to criminal prosecution. As Justice Alito notes, quote, the plain implication of the phrase, the party convicted in this clause, is that the criminal prosecution, like removal from the presidency and disqualification from other offices, is a consequence that can come about only after the Senate's judgment, not during or prior to the Senate trial. That is from Trump v. Vance. Ch -ch 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 -ch. 
Justice Alito's interpretation of the clause is well-founded. The long-standing canon of interpretation, expressio unius est exclusio alterius, or the negative inference canon, reflects the principle that specification of the one implies exclusion of the other validly describes how people express themselves and understand verbal expression. When a car dealer promises a low financing rate to purchasers with good credit, it is entirely clear that the rate is not available to purchasers with spotty credit. So also here, when the Constitution provides that the party convicted in the Senate may be subject to criminal prosecution, it is entirely clear that the party acquitted in a Senate trial is not subject to criminal prosecution for official acts. This is true because the phrase, the party convicted, can reasonably be, reasonably be thought to be an expression of all that shares in the grant or prohibition involved. Because there are only two possible outcomes from a Senate trial, conviction or acquittal. Specifying the implications of one outcome clearly means that those implications do not apply to the other outcome. This interpretation reflects the original public meaning of the impeachment clause. James Wilson, who had participated in the Philadelphia Convention at the which the document was drafted, explained that although the president is amenable to the laws in his private character as a citizen and in his public character by impeachment. In addition, in Federalist Number 43, James Madison indicated that concerns about politically motivated prosecutions led to the adoption of the definition of treason. In Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1 of the Constitution, quote, As treason may be committed against the United States, the authority of the United States ought to be enabled to punish it. But as newfangled and artificial treasons have been the great engines by which violent factions, the natural offspring of free governments, have usually wreaked their alternate malignity on each other, the Constitutional Convention have with great judgment opposed a barrier to this peculiar danger by inserting a constitutional definition of the crime, fixing the proof necessary for conviction of it, and restraining the Congress, even in punishing it, from extending the consequences of guilt beyond the person of its author. Federalist number 47, authored by Madison, Emphasis added right here. Okay, in Federalist number 65, Alexander Hamilton explained that the Constitution entrusted impeachment trials to the Senate because the risk of politically motivated criminal trials, which would inevitably be tainted by factionalism and partisanship, was too great in the courts, including even the Supreme Court. Quote, a well-constituted court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained in a government wholly elective. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may with, which may with peculiar propriety be dominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties, more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. 
Hamilton went on to argue that even the Supreme Court should not handle prosecutions of major political figures. Quote, the awful discretion which a court of impeachments must necessarily have to doom to honor or to infamy the most confidential and the most distinguished characters of the community forbids the commitment of the trust to a small number of persons. These considerations seem alone sufficient to authorize a conclusion that the Supreme Court would have been an improper substitute for the Senate as a court of impeachments. In addition, treating impeachment as the exclusive remedy for alleged crimes committed in office is consistent with the Supreme Court's immunity decisions as to other sensitive officials, such as federal judges. The Supreme Court has held that judges are absolutely immune from civil liability and criminal prosecution for their official acts, and that the sole remedy is impeachment. Quote, but for malice or corruption in their action, whilst exercising their judicial functions within the general scope of the jurisdiction, the judges of these courts can only be reached by public prosecution in the form of impeachment, or in such other form as may be specially prescribed. In Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court reinforced this conclusion by emphasizing that the proper remedy against a president a president for official misfeasance is the threat of impeachment, not criminal prosecution. Quote, a rule of absolute immunity for the president will not leave the nation without sufficient protection against misconduct on the part of the chief, chief executive. There remains the constitutional remedy for of impeachment. In addition, there are formal and informal checks on the presidential action. The president is subjected to constant scrutiny by the press. Vigilant oversight by Congress may also serve to deter presidential abuse of office, as well as to make credible the threat of impeachment. Other incentives to avoid misconduct may include a desire to earn re-election, the need to maintain prestige as an element of presidential influence, and a president's traditional concern for his historical nature. Nixon versus Fitzgerald. Here, President Trump is not a party convicted in an impeachment by the Senate. In January 2021, he was impeached by the House on articles arising from the same course of conduct at issue in the indictment. Among other things, the articles of impeachment charged that President Trump, quote, repeatedly issued false statements asserting that the presidential election were the, was the result. The results were the product of widespread fraud and should not be accepted by the American people or certified by state or federal officials made claims in a speech on January 6th, engaged in prior efforts to subvert and obstruct the certification of the results of the 2020 presidential election, including through a phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, and threatened the integrity of the democratic system. The indictment here rests on the very same alleged facts. President Trump was acquitted of these charges after trial in the Senate. He is thus not a party convicted under Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7, and he is not subject to indictment, trial, judgment, punishment. In sum, under the Constitution, the executive branch, including the prosecution, lacks authority to second-guess the determination of acquittal made by the United States Senate, the body to which the Constitution explicitly entrusts this authority. To do so violates the impeachment clause, and the principles of separation of powers by unlawfully encroaching on authority exclusively vested in Congress. The prosecution is barred by principles of double, double jeopardy.
Applying principles of double jeopardy leads to the same conclusion. The Fifth Amendment states, quote, Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. U.S. Constitution Amendment 5. The clause prevents the same sovereign from subjecting a defendant to multiple sequential charges based on the same operative facts or the same course of conduct. Under those principles, the prosecution cannot proceed against President Trump for conduct of which he was acquitted by the Senate. (laughs) The fact that different branches of the federal government are at issue makes no difference. Quote, in applying the dual sovereignty doctrine, then, the crucial determination is whether the two entities that seek successively to prosecute a defendant for the same course of conduct can be termed separate sovereigns. This determination turns on whether the two entities draw their authority to punish the offender from distinct sources of power. With respect to the federal government and the states, there are distinct sovereignties. Quote, the states are no less sovereign with respect to each other than they are with respect to federal government. Their powers to undertake criminal prosecutions derive from separate and independent sources of power and authority originally belonging to them before admission to the Union and preserved to them by the Tenth Amendment. The same is not true, however, with respect to different branches of the federal government, all of which derive their power from the same source, the Constitution. Thus, the executive and judicial branches cannot seek to place President Trump in jeopardy for conduct of which the legislative branch has absolved him. All three branches are co-equal parts of the same sovereign, deriving their power and authority from the same source. Boom. Boom. The government, through Congress, already put Trump on trial once, placing him in jeopardy for an alleged criminal offense arising from the same course of conduct alleged in the indictment. Having failed to obtain a conviction, President Trump's acquittal in the United States Senate must stand, and the prosecution may not seek a retrial in this forum. The indictment violates the fair notice doctrine of the due process clause. The indictment charges President Trump with crimes arising from his political advocacy on matters of public concern made in the middle of a disputed presidential campaign and election. President Trump's actions were inspired by and fully consistent with the examples from many similar contested election disputes in our nation's history. There is a long history in our nation dating back to 1800 and encompassing elections in 1800, 1824, 1876, 1960, 2000, 2004, and 2016, among many others of disputing the outcome of close presidential elections, publicly claiming that election results were tainted by fraud, filing legal actions to challenge election results, lobbying Congress to to certify disputed election results, in one side's favor or the other, and organizing alternate contingent slates of electors to assist in such efforts. In other words, all the chief alleged acts charged in the indictment have a long historical pedigree in American electoral history, and they have long been decided in the political arena. President Trump is the first person to face criminal charges for such core political behavior as disputing the outcome of an election. 
He is charged, moreover, under statutes that facially have nothing to do with his alleged conduct and whose language the special prosecutor stretches beyond recognition. As a result, President Trump could not possibly have received fair notice that his conduct was supposedly criminal when he performed it. The indictment should be dismissed with prejudice for violation of the fair notice requirement of the due process clause. Quote, a criminal statute must give fair warning of the conduct. It makes a crime. Bowie City versus City of, no, Bowie versus City of Columbia, 1964. Quote, the underlying principle is that no man shall be held criminally responsible for conduct which he could not reasonably understand to be proscribed. United States versus Harris. 1954. The Supreme Court has compared the, quote, fair warning standard to the, quote, clearly established standard applied to civil cases under 1983 or Bivens cases. United States versus Lanier, to be clearly established, quote, existing precedent must have placed the statutory or constitutional question beyond debate. The fair notice requirement cannot be satisfied by post-conduct judicial interpretation of the statutes at issue. Quote, if the 14th Amendment is violated when a person is required to speculate as to the meaning of penal statutes or to guess at the statute's meaning and defer as to its application, the violation is that much greater when, because the uncertainty as to the statute's meaning is itself not revealed until the court's decision, a person is not even afforded an opportunity to engage in such speculation before committing the act in question. There can be no doubt that a deprivation of the right of fair warning can result not, result not only from vague statutory language, but also from an unforeseeable and retroactive judicial expansion of narrow and precise statutory language. Deprivation of the right of fair warning can result both from the vague statutory language and from unforeseeable and retroactive judicial expansion of statutory language that appears narrow and precise on its face. Aram versus Trump 2020. So this, this is somebody who sued Trump. And this quote is from it. Although courts routinely clarify the law and apply that clarification to past behavior, the principle of fair warning requires that novel standards announced in adjudications must not be given retroactive effect, where they are unexpected and indefensible by reference to the law, which had been expressed prior to the conduct and issue. I don't. I, that's the first I've heard of this case, Karam versus Trump. <coughs> I wonder what that was about. The reason I wonder is I wonder if it was planned. Just it's funny how many times cases that Trump's involved in come back up and come back up to his benefit in a way that's beneficial to him or someone else. I got to sit up. I keep my chair is really comfortable and I keep as I'm reading I'm just like sinking into it more and more and more. <laughs> Almost done. Okay. The principle of fair notice, fair notice has special force here, where the lack of fair notice directly implicates First Amendment rights. The general test of vagueness applies with particular force in review of laws dealing with speech. Stricter standards of permissible statutory vagueness may be applied. Okay, here, President Trump's alleged conduct publicly and politically disputing the outcome of the election attempting to convince Congress to act and allegedly organizing alternate slates of electors, which he did not do. 
falls outside the plain language of the charge statutes, as discussed in President Trump's motion to dismiss based on statutory grounds filed separately. No, no court has ever applied these statutes to similar conduct, and the statute's meaning cannot be expanded by judicial reinterpretation after the fact without violating the Due Process Clause's fair notice requirement. The extensive history of disputing elections in our nation further demonstrates that none of these statutes provide fair notice that the alleged conduct is criminal. As for public statements and claims that the presidential election was rigged and fraudulent, such claims have been a staple of American political discourse for decades. As one commentator has quipped, quote, if questioning the results of a presidential election were a crime, as many have asserted in the wake of the controversial 2020 election and its aftermath, then much of the Democratic Party and media establishment should have been indicted for their behavior following the 2016 election. In fact, the last time Democrats fully accepted the legitimacy of a presidential election they lost was in 1988. Democratic members of Congress have voted to refuse to certify electors after the elections of 2004 and 2016. And there have been extensive attempts to submit alternate electors and dispute the outcome of presidential of Republican presidential victories in recent decades. What is this? What did this quote go back to? This is a quote. Oh, this they're quoting articles from the media and Democrats talking about Trump stealing the election in 2016. Uh, the next footnote has to do with the 2000 election. Additional historic precedent is in close and contested elections supports the lawfulness of actions alleged in the indictment. For example, in the disputed elections of 1876 and 1960, competing slates of electors were sent to Congress. Yes, and those slates of electors were valid, legitimate, unlike the ones in 2020, unfortunately. In 1800, Vice President Jefferson unilaterally made the decision to accept questionable electoral votes from Georgia that favored him. Bruce Ackerman and David Fontana, how Jefferson counted himself. In 1824, when his disputed election with Andrew Jackson was decided in the House of Representatives, President John Quincy Adams successfully lobbied the House to decide the election in his favor, even though Jackson far exceeded his totals in both the popular vote and electoral college. So successfully, in fact, that Jackson's supporters accused him of striking a corrupt bargain with House Speaker Henry Clay, whom Adams soon appointed Secretary of State. And in 1960, Vice President Nixon, himself a candidate, decided which competing slate of electors to accept from Hawaii. Herb Jackson, what happened? Vice President Nixon, sitting in the presiding, as the presiding officer of the Joint Convention of the two houses, suggested that the electors named the Certificate of Governor, dated January 4th, 1961, be considered the lawful electors of Hawaii. Yeah, okay, man. Okay. Let me let me see if it goes on to say more about that. In the 2000 election contest, three Supreme Court justices pointed to the Hawaii situation in 1960 to emphasize that competing slates of electors could be submitted to Congress and that Congress could make the decision on which slate to accept. But... As I have already noted, this is a quote, those provisions of the Electoral Count Act merely provide rules of decision for Congress to follow when selecting among conflicting slates of electors. They do not prohibit a state 
from counting what the majority concedes to be legal votes until a bona fide winner is determined. Indeed, in 1960, Hawaii appointed two slates of electors and Congress chose to count the one appointed on January 4th, 1961, well after the Title III deadline. In addition, the actions charged in the indictment against President Trump were consistent with the provisions of the then current version of the Electoral Count Act. All right, so uh, there's something I want to say about 1960 because um, on the right, media on the right get it wrong a lot. And I, I wish it made it clear in here. Um, but in 1960, with that election, there was a belief that there was fraud in Hawaii. And there was, well, it, it, the election in Hawaii was so incredibly close within hundreds of votes. So they did a re, they already sent a slate of electors and they did a recount. They notified Congress that they were doing this recount and they may have a different slate of electors that they would send to them. Then once they did the recount and realized the other candidate won, they assembled together in Hawaii and they made another slate of electors that was official, that was legal. So now you had two slates of electors that both came from the government of Hawaii, signed by the governor. Like all they, they checked all the boxes, crossed their T's, dotted their I's. But they had, in a, they had sent two slates of electors because one went before the recount and the other came after the recount was done. So when Nixon is there and he has to choose which one to select, it wasn't like he had a real choice, like he could do what he wanted there. It was that they had one set, one slave electors was already received and was official, but they had been contacted by the state of Hawaii to let them know, hey, that one was wrong. We did a recount. We're sending you a new slate of electors. And then they got that. And so Nixon chose that one, but it's the one that Hawaii said was, was right. And they wanted chosen. Right. So it's not this scenario where Nixon had this free will to choose whichever one he wanted. Also what is left out. And this is maybe the most bothersome thing. When people quote what Nixon said about 1960, when he selected that slate, he said, this is not precedent setting. He said, I do not intend, it's like, his quote is like, I do not intend my action today to set any sort of precedent. He was simply, he was being, um, he was doing just what Pence did, which was, these are the official slates presented to me, and I am presenting them to Congress to count. Congress can object. It's not up to the, the vice president to be up there and object. It's up to Congress represent the representatives to object. So anyway, all right, next we're almost done at the time of the allegations in the indictment. The only relevant judicial precedent from 2000, which by the way, uh, Eastman was the architect of a fake elector scheme in 2000 as well. Um, trying to ensure that Bush got elected so he had the same scheme that he came up with in 2020, he also was advocating for in 2000, and there's video of him doing it. All right. Furthermore, the actions listed in the indictment had been performed in 1800, 1824, 76, 1960, among others, without any suggestion they were criminal. Scores of people have been involved in similar conduct over the years of American history, and none has faced criminal prosecution. On these facts, at best, quote, men of common intelligence must necessarily guess 
if President Trump's conduct violated the statute and the charges thus violate the due process clause. This court should dismiss the indictment with prejudice. Signed, Todd Blanche, Emil Vove, John Lauro, Gregory Singer, Vilza Pavillon, counsel for President Trump. Nice. I liked this one just about as much as I liked the other one. So that's two motions to dismiss based on two different things. And then there's still two more. And we'll just have to go over those next time. We'll just have to go over those on the next show. All right. I don't know if you guys can hear, but I got some rug rats running around upstairs. And uh, my wa- it is time for my wife to head to her, to her, her parents' house to uh, start making apple pies. So I got to go. Thank you guys very much for being here today. If you like the show, hit the thumbs up over on Rumble. And uh, if you really like the show, then click one of the links in the description or on my link tree to go to one of the advertisers, Benson Honey Farms or Bootleg. Get yourself get yourself something or go to my merch store or buy me a coffee or justhuman.substack.com. Any of those places to support the show. I appreciate it. And uh, share it around if you really like it. So you guys have a happy Thanksgiving. It is my absolute favorite holiday. And uh, yeah, live it. Don't forget the true meaning of it. Be thankful. I am very thankful. I'm very thankful for where I'm at in life. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you guys. I wouldn't be here without, without all of you. So sincere, sincere thank you to each and every one of you. Y'all have a a blessed Thanksgiving. Stay positive. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. I will see y'all tonight on the Devolution Power Hour. Have a great day.